Military Veterans in Journalism proudly presents Sword and Pen. Welcome to another episode of the Sword and Pen, a podcast dedicated to inspiring and supporting our military veterans and journalism members. I'm your host, Lori King, and I thank you for tuning in. For this episode, I introduce you to one of our 2023 Top 10 MBJ Journalists of the Year, Cyrus Norcross, an award-winning freelance journalist who has dedicated much of his journalism coverage focusing on the Navajo Nation. Cyrus, it's a privilege to have you on the show to shine a light on a very underreported segment of our society in America, the Indigenous people. We are going to get into your Navajo Native culture, what drives you to tell their stories, your military background as an Army Ranger, and your writing career, which includes co-authoring two books, one being about the 75th Ranger Regiment in the War on Terror. I also want to talk about the story you submitted to the Journalist of the Year nomination panel, that story, Justice for D. Sheetney, Family of a Man Found Dead Seeks Policy Changes, obviously made an impact. Congratulations on that winning piece. Thank you for that introduction and thank you for having me on this podcast. I am really excited to be able to, to share my story and not just on the veteran aspect, but also on the Native American aspect as well. But first, it's time for the MVJ Bulletin, which promotes career opportunities, news announcements, and personal stories about our members published in the monthly MVJ newsletter, delivered to all of our members via email. The MVJ convention in New York City is almost here, and we are looking for convention volunteers from October 5 through 7. We're seeking volunteers to hand out badges and take photos and help run a virtual MVJ help desk, among other things. There is a survey form link on the newsletter, so click it and get involved. There's an exciting new addition to our membership, newsroom tours during the MVJ convention. The MVJ team has been working with Journalism Next to develop your MVJ careers, which is a new job search platform. Click on the Read More link to read the full story about the tours, which includes the Gannett USA Today New York City office or the Bloomberg New York City newsroom. I've signed up for the Bloomberg tour, so maybe I'll see you there. One more convention brief that's important to mention. We are partnered with Disabled American Veterans for this year's career fair. Talent acquisition teams from CNN, WBD Sports, Spectrum News, and more will be there to connect with our members, so you can submit your resume and check out the schedule by clicking on both links in the newsletter. This month's Spotlight on Veterans in Journalism features Christian Garzon, a Navy veteran and TV reporter with WROC News 8 in Rochester, New York, and Brian Woolston, an Army veteran and photojournalist who specializes in editorial, documentary, and sports photography. Go to the newsletter to check out their work. Now, let's get back to the show. Cyrus, you live on a reservation in Arizona that you call Navajo Nation. You tell people that you live on the Arizona side of the nation. Can you tell us a little bit about the indigenous people and your uh, Navajo heritage? Yes, um, I can go right into why I call it Navajo Nation rather than Navajo Reservation. And one of the main things being that whenever a government or a nation goes into treaty, they go into treaties with another nation. 
another country, another ethnicity. So I like to call it a nation because the United States government went into a negotiation process with the Navajo people, which establishes it as a nation. The Navajo Nation is resided in the four corners of the Southwest, which would be Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. And I live on the Arizona side. So that's one of the main reasons why I call it the Navajo Nation and Arizona side. And um, a lot of the Navajo Nation is about 28,000 square miles. So it's as big as West Virginia. So it's a really big area that's very underreported. At the time when I was working with Navajo Times, there were only about six or eight of us covering that whole area. So it's a very large area to report on and very underreported as well. Do you actually live in Phoenix? I used to live in Phoenix, but not anymore. What town do you live in now? Uh, I live in a small town called Lukajigai, Arizona, which is, if anyone is familiar with the Navajo Nation, it is 45 minutes north of Chinle. It's a small, small town. So that's very rural. There's like less than a thousand people who live here. <laughs> Let's talk about your military service for a moment. You enlisted in the Army in 2007 and served four years with the 75th Ranger Regiment and two years with the 4th Infantry Division. You served one tour in Iraq and two tours in Afghanistan, ETSing in 2013. How did you go from being an Army Ranger to a journalist and without a journalism degree? Uh, did it start with your two short stories in the book, Standing for Unity, Indian Land and Violence of Action? and your coverage of the Standing Rock protest in North Dakota as an activist. I think you said those two things inspired you to become a journalist. You are, you are correct. Uh, the The book actually was kind of a, on a whim. One of my friends actually has been on this podcast. His name is Marty Scovlin. Um, he kind of put out this disclaimer that he wanted to have, or he wanted to create this book of Rangers to show that we we were in this war for 20 years and there was really no highlight on them. So I kind of saw it as like an opportunity to throw the Navajos, Navajo nations and native American people in that book. And I told myself, if I don't do this, then no one's ever going to ever know that there were Navajos or even native Americans and in, involved with special operations. So I went ahead and was like, I'm just going to write two stories and, and see what happens. And um, it, it just led to me wanting to become more of a writer. And I realized that while I was at Standing Rock, that the coverage of natives were covered by mostly non-native journalists. And I was, I was a little shocked by that. And I was, I was like, wow, there's really not a lot of native journalists out there. Uh, I would like to be one of them. And I just so happened to be friends with a lot of journalists who were coming out to visit, I wasn't seeking them out. We just had the same mindset. So I started to shadow them, listen to them, how they would conduct interviews, where they would go, how they would set up their videography. Uh, one of them is a good friend of mine. His name is Zen Lafont, and he's a French journalist who came out and he taught me a lot about photography and interviewing people and how to embed with people as a journalist. And I really took a lot of that on. And so I ended up continuing moving forward with that. And when I was originally going to go to school for journalism and the 
director of the program I was at, which was University of Arizona, told me verbatim, Cyrus, you've already got journalism, journalism experience. I would major in something else. If you're already doing this, do something else. And so um, that kind of led me astray. But that's how I kind of got into journalism. Do you think that was good advice in hindsight, no. thinking back on it? No, I, I don't. I, I really wish I would have just stuck with, with journalism. I, I feel like the more I walk away from journalism, which has been a couple of times, the more I keep coming back. And I really feel that uh, I should have just stuck it out and learn about journalism because now I'm, I'm learning how to write better. And I feel that I probably could be a lot better writer if I had just gone to school for it. But um, uh, everyone has their different paths of getting there. And I, mine was just kind of like on the job training and making many mistakes. Yours is just plain old passion to tell a story. Yeah, has that I, always been in you? When did you feel the urge to need to tell stories? You know, that that's a, that's a really good question. I would say in the military. It was when I was in the military. A lot of my friends, I was one of the only people who would always carry a camera with me. And um, I would just go around taking photos of them. Like we'd be on ruck marches. I'll be taking photos. Um, even jumping out of airplanes, I was one of the only people. I think I am one of the only person that I know of who took a camera with me and jumped into the ocean out in um, the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it was a very small Kodiak camera that was waterproof. And so I took it out and I jumped out with it. And um, you know, these are like the makings of uh, a photojournalist. <laughs> maybe not maybe not as extreme. I, I, that's I've, It was always there and I, I never really knew it. I eventually started, when I got out of the army, I actually got into YouTubing for a little bit kind of just sharing my life, but I, I didn't really like doing that. But I enjoy telling stories. I enjoy telling people's stories. I enjoyed listening to people and just how they would talk about the things they've been involved in. And there are so many interesting people out there. And I found myself always listening more than more than talking. So that's a good feature for a uh, journalist. What do you think are some of the attributes that a military veteran will bring into the newsroom or even as a freelancer in the journalism field? Number one attribute that all journalists or no veterans in general have is this adaptability, being able to adapt to various situations. Uh, not even just in journalism, just in general, life in general, a lot of veterans are very adaptable to, to their environment. And I, I think that's one attribute. Another attribute is curiosity or the willingness to learn for me I've, I've always been strong advocate for if you discontinue to learn or accept the fact that you know enough of what you know about that's when problems happen or certain things happen that you're not able to articulate the story correctly or you're not able to dive deeper into the story so every time I approach a story I approach it with the mindset of I don't know nothing I think that's another attribute is a lot of a lot of veterans are learners, learners for life. And I think that's that's a one. And then the third attribute is just the willingness to get the the job done. A lot of veterans are wanting to get that job done and want to be able to contribute back to society. And I think a lot of people kind of forget that journalism is actually you're in service of the community, you're in service to the public and you're digging, asking the hard questions to answer these politicians or 
entertainers or even celebrities. You ask the hard questions so the public can know what's really going on. You just got a new freelance gig at Indian Country Today. Congratulations for signing on with that newspaper, by the way, which is a daily digital news platform that covers the indigenous world, including American Indians, Alaska Natives, and First Nations. I know you are very excited to continue your coverage of the Native community. Can you tell us what kind of stories you hope to tell? Thank you for that. I Those kind words, I greatly appreciate it. A lot of the stories I would like to dive into would be, oh, public health. I think public health is a very big, big one. It just involves a lot of, it involves economics, involves politics, involves science, uh, involves medical science, and also involves the cultural side of everything, the social significance of a community. Another one would be obviously missing and murdered indigenous people. I really feel that that's, that's a big one that I'm really wanting to continue to work toward and help these families in, in any way that I can. And um, if possible, I would love to just go into arts, talking to fellow filmmakers and talking to a lot of actors or even um, production designers, like natives in the film industry. And last but not least, the native veterans. I think that's a big one. There's really not much out there about what a lot of these native veterans are doing in their communities. There are so many good people out there who are doing so many amazing things, but they're they're not known, and I think they should be known. We were talking the other day about how to address someone in the Native community uh, that is not offensive, and how the Natives refer to themselves. How important is it to bring awareness to the proper way to address someone in the Native community? I know the military has helped you become desensitized to the whole issue, and you prefer Native for the simplicity of it, but what about those of us who really want to be politically correct, so to speak? Okay, so take the word Indian, for example. I mean, the Cleveland Indians, known as the Indians since 1915, is now the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, that was a huge name change that happened two years ago because of a national reckoning on racist names. And even in my hometown of Toledo, Ohio, a high school changed their mascot from the Bowser Indians to the Blue Racers. So what is your advice for for people who weren't raised around a native community? I think the uh, first thing to really do to really, um, if you want to really get into political correctness, would be to ask that specific person what tribe they're from. And they'll usually tell you, oh, I'm Apache or I'm San Carlos Apache or I'm Navajo, or I am Lakota. And some of them will even tell you to refer them by their, the actual name, which would be, um, so for Navajo, a lot of, you'll meet a lot of people who would say, no, I'm not Navajo, I'm Diné, which is the Navajo term for the people, which is Navajo. <laughs> um, so like that, that you will hear people say it. So I think the best thing to do would just to be asked that specific person, what what tribe they are just right off the bat because that'll definitely alleviate a lot of political scrutiny on oh you called me indigenous i prefer to be called native american or i prefer to be called Na um, native but you called me indigenous uh, i think that's the best way to uh, address someone is ask them for the tribe i'm really glad it's a conversation we're having though 
Before Cyrus gets into the tragic story he wrote about suspected police brutality in a small Navajo town in New Mexico, which was actually the story that earned him the MVJ Journalist of the Year Award, I want to take a moment to thank a few of our generous sponsors that are helping to make our convention in New York City possible. One of them is Spectrum News, who is actually hiring positions in 30 regional news markets across the United States. Last month, the talent acquisition team held a webinar for MVJ members to talk about Spectrum's work environment and approach to journalism, and they gave our members tips to get hired. If you missed that webinar, subscribe to MVJ's YouTube page to see a recording of it. I also want to mention Disabled American Veterans for partnering with us to sponsor the career fair at the convention next month. DAV has been supporting disabled veterans and their families since World War I. And one of those media companies who will be present at the career fair to connect with our MVJ members and their families is CNN, a multinational cable news channel that's been delivering 24-hour news coverage since 1980. Thank you, sponsors. We really appreciate your support at this year's convention. Okay, so you're going to the convention in New York City to receive your MVJ Journalist of the Year Award. Can you please tell us about the story that you submitted Justice for Deshini. Yes, uh, that that's a very peculiar story. In order to kind of like really understand it, I'll kind of like give a little bit of background information on it. So the Navajo Nation, as I said before, is about 28,000 square miles. And covering that are less than 200 Navajo police officers. I think right now it's around 180. So you have about that many people who are already covering a large rural area, and that is that is not enough. And so the specific area that I'm covering, or in the story, I should say, is called a place called Shiprock, New Mexico. And in that town is close to 10,000, I think it's somewhere around 9,800, some, somewhere around those, somewhere around there is the actual number. Covering that amount of people is anywhere between eight to 12 Navajo police officers. So it's already an area that is underprotected. And they had an old police station and that old police station got shut down due to asbestos. So they shut that down. This was about 2017, if I remember correctly. And then the jail, the same thing happened. I believe that got shut down in 2019. That place is underprotected, doesn't have a police station, doesn't have a jail cell. They are working out of a post office. And if they got any serious crime, the arresting police officer would have to drive about a total of three hours to another police station on the reservation just to book that individual. So the story is about a young kid who was 21 at the time, I believe, who was arrested by a police officer for just um, drunkenly disordered conduct. And the police officer brought him back to the post office as there's no jail and was looking for a person to, to call or family member to call to drop, to drop the guy off. And at some point the kid started throwing up in the back of the police vehicle and these are the words that were sent out through the public information officer was that the arresting officer stopped what he was doing or she was doing that they don't state if it was a he or her stepped out 
got this genie, took him out from the back, put him in the back of the cruiser. So he's still handcuffed. There's no, he's not tied up to anything. They didn't tie him up to a tire or nothing. They put him back. Once they set him down, they moved back to the front of the vehicle to get napkins, to get gloves to put on, to then proceed to clean the back of the vehicle. After getting that material, the police officer went back and claims that Justin or the Mr. Deschini had disappeared and was gone. And I was like, that's a very peculiar story. How can you not hear someone drunk run away or take off? You're a police officer. You've had to have arrested numerous drunk people. How can you not hear a 21-year-old who's blackout drunk just take off so in and it's in a post office i'm and that post office is very small it has high high fences so i really don't know how the guy could even escape the police's clutches without hearing him running away they said they searched for the kid could not find him and now it took a while and then the the, the sister the older sister was able to contact like hey we're looking for my brother we can't find him where is he and the police officer what she told me was we don't know where your brother is but we want our handcuffs back that's not that it's not that professional i helped him out i started looking into it and uh, eventually they found him face down like two weeks later decomposing in the water canal and the handcuffs were still on him and so i went was able to get a hold of the autopsy report and the autopsy report was reported back to me. And they're like, yeah, um, he died from drowning. It said at the end of the report, mostly he died of drowning due to the fact that had handcuffs on him. So that was the story that I did it on and how I reported on it was really like looking into all these disparities that the Navajo nation police has they are lacking in manpower they're lacking in buildings they're lacking in um, having these just com service community service being able to talk to people being able to tell people certain issues um, even just handling a drunk drunk person was something that we that I looked into and um, I had talked to with the current chief um, and he told me that it was on him that a lot of his police officers are not conducting the proper procedure to address a lot of these criminals and also the family, like the family would reach out and multiple occasions, a specific family would, would reach out and would never get anything back ever. So they've got a, since then they've got a lawyer and now they're suing the Navajo police for, for the loss of their brother, for the loss of their son, nephew, and he's a father too, and wanting to implement new policy for the police to handle drunk people, to advocate for an actual police station, to advocate for an actual jail housing. So that's what I reported on. Um, and it, I mean, it goes deeper into that as well. There, there's so much, so many cracks, nooks and crannies that haven't been looked into um, that, that I've been able to look into. And you just hear so many strange, strange things out there. How did you hear about that story and who did you write it for? So I was 
literally driving back from a town called Farmington, New Mexico. I just got done with another story and I was driving back from Farmington, New Mexico back to my place. And I saw a vigil walk going on, all like candles, people, people walking around with candles. I was like, oh, what's, what is this? What's, what's going on? And I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just take some photos. I have my camera with me. So I, I hopped out. I started taking photos and I started seeing them carrying posters of a individual with a face and like it said justice for Dash Cheney and I was like oh what's what's going on and I have, was already covering um missing and murdered and I was like oh you know what what is this I, I've never heard of this person I, I don't know who this is I, it, it was just I've never heard of it it wasn't anywhere anywhere and so I got out and I just followed him I followed him. I parked at the old police station, actually. I parked at the old police station. It's there. It's huge, but no one uses it because of asbestos. And um, stepped out and I followed him. I followed him all the way up to their current police station, the post office. And they were all outside of there um, protesting, talking about the, their their son, their nephew, what happened to him, where is his body at. And this was probably two weeks after they had declared that he was missing and they were still looking for his body so i was just like oh like wh what is this so I, I ended up writing about that for navajo times who i was i was a full staff reporter or technically photographer for at the time so i was like man this is kind of a why is no one talking about this so that's that's when i kind of like looked into it so what is next for you i know you're interested in investigative journalism uh, like public health, uh, you mentioned uh, when I talked to you last, um, maybe doing stories on burn pits, uh, bringing an awareness to a law that passed in 1978. Yeah, so I, I really wanted to just dive into a lot of, um, starting off with the burn pit, I, I believe that a lot of these native natives here don't have access to waste facilities, nor do they have trucks that take away the trash that people have. So a lot of people end up burning their own trash. So it's very similar to being overseas where people would just burn, have burn pits and how that's affected a lot of veterans. And so I kind of looked at it in that way when after the pact that was passed and I was like, wow, it's very similar on the reservation where a lot of people are just building their waste and there's no facilities that these people can take it to. And if there is, they charge these people um, a, too much money and so i think about what are the environmental impacts and the health impacts of a lot of these burning trash that is going on around here on the navajo nation so that's something i like to to dive into um the second thing i'm looking into is actually a lot of this missing and murdered indigenous people um because of that law oliphant versus Suquamish tribe which made it well the Supreme Court ruled that tribal courts cannot prosecute non-natives when they, when they commit a crime on that specific nation, to that nation, to that tribal nation. So I really see that that really opened up the crime rate of a lot of these native nations across across the United States. So that was passed in 1978, which essentially just made it legal to get away with murder on the reservations and the and it's just like, wow, the Supreme Court actually did that. I just I just couldn't believe 
that their own Supreme Court would 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 do something like that. Because when you look at the American people traveling to another country, to another nation, that American citizen has to abide by that nation, by that, by that country's um, laws. Third one would be working on documentaries on, on just various issues, um, even just talking about the disparities of a lot of a lot of these native nations. So I think that's uh, really what I would like to move forward with. Well, I definitely thank you for all you're doing and all you will continue to do in the future. We're really lucky at MVJ to have you as a member. Is there anything else that you think our listeners would want to hear? I'm, I'm a huge in, into filmmaking. With my college, I just started the first film club and we're like just putting things together. And so I'm kind of, I'm hoping to make that kind of a, make something big out of that and, and move forward with that. Well, you're getting your BFA at what college? Uh, Diné College. So it's, it's a small tribal college. Yeah. Very, like very, very small. And I just want to end it with thanking you, Lori, and thank you for having me on here and MBJ for the award and the numerous mentors that I've had out there um, would be Alex, um, Marty, and uh, a lot of people who supported me to get here. Um, There's so many people out there, my mom and uh, a lot of the Navajo people. So I just really appreciate everyone who's got me up to this point. So thank you, Lori. You're welcome. Well, thank you, Cyrus Norcross, for joining me on the Sword and Pen. It was an honor hearing about your own personal story and how you are driven to represent your Native heritage. Again, congratulations on your MBJ JOI award, and I'll see you in New York City. I am your host, Lori King. You're dismissed. You've been listening to Sword and Pen, a military veterans in journalism podcast.